0: this week on the back table podcast after going through these health issues you know i i pivoted a little bit more toward using humor for advocacy in particular like health insurance probably just like healthcare system issues that we have i do consider it advocacy because i do have a platform obviously a lot of people follow me and so by addressing this really serious topic whether it's like prior authorizations or any kind of health insurance shenanigans by disguising it as comedy it gets people listening it gets people watching and it's gonna that message is gonna reach more people and then you just put a little truth in there about something that's not so good that needs to change and your ideas can spread
1: hello everyone and welcome back to the Backtable Podcast. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor
2: RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians. Clinically proven radiation protection during Cine and digital subtraction angiography. geography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad radiation protection shields for all your fluoro guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Back Table podcast. Now, back to the episode.
1: This is Aditya Bagrodi as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Will Flannery, also known as Dr. Glockenfecken. We're super excited to to have you on. We're releasing this across platforms, and um, it's just a thrill. How are how are you doing today, Will? How are things? I'm great. Did you practice that before you said it, Glockenplucking? Well, because you did pretty I good. Think it kind of stuck from medical school, you know. Uh, I, it might have come across my path once upon a time. There's no way you ever learned that in med school, or, or maybe it was in high school German. Um, <laughs> it could it could have been that also. Could have been. Well, you know, my wife and I, she's a pediatrician. We're huge fans of the work that you've done. Really bringing some levity and humor to our field. It's it's spot on. I think a lot of people really extract a lot of joy. And actually, there was a medical student here who reached out to me and say, hey, did you know that Dr. Gleckenfecken had testis cancer? And it was kind of a trip. That's that's my kind of clinical passion, research <laughs> passion. I spent a, a lot of that's time thinking area, about right? testis cancer. So I was thinking we could talk a little bit about you know your diagnosis, the second diagnosis, yeah. Your medical history that, that uh you've been kind enough to share in some form or fashion, and then how humor's played into all of this. Absolutely. Yeah. Before we get into that though, I, I brought this um, so I'll just describe what
0: I have here. This is a um a scrub cap that has little testicles all over it. So this is going to be my urology character outfit, costume whenever i have time to make some urology content. So it's i've got a scrub cap covered in testicles which uh you know i think will be very popular with Are the those urologists. testicles with mistletoe on them? They do. It's a it's a it's a mistletoe themed. <laughs> <It's> a... <laughs> It's a holiday, holiday uh, testicles.
1: All right, all right. I'm, I'm not going to dig too far into that, try to keep it PG, but- Yeah, um, you know, I get I
0: get sent a lot of really strange things from followers. So uh, this was one of the
1: better ones. Uh, so, yeah. I'm almost guessing urology skits are kind of super low-hanging fruit that, that you've really got to be ready when you yeah, go for uh, it. Yeah, there's lots of
0: low-hanging fruit in urology. Um, and so, you know, urologists are- I think have the best sense of humor in medicine or at least like top five for sure. And, and it's because like you're doing so many very um, interesting things in your line of work that you kind of have to have a sense of humor, you know, when you're, you know, interacting with patients and doing very sensitive things. (laughs) So I feel like it's a, it's a field that's ripe for comedy. Every urologist I've ever interacted with has a fantastic sense of humor. So I appreciate you well, guys. Well, good
1: to hear. Good to hear. Yeah, it's a fun field, and I think there there is some intrinsic humor that comes along with it. But with, uh, yeah, let me. I'm I, sorry, I didn't mean to to Not sidetrack
0: everything. But yeah, so my testicular cancer. Although, should I say testis cancer from now on? I noticed you said it. I never say testis cancer. Does that make me sound more professional? No, no. I, I mean, testis? absolutely
1: testis cancer, testicular cancer. Th- doesn't matter. All, no, it, it absolutely doesn't matter. Let's let's go with testicular cancer. Okay. Let's start at, you know, kind of the beginning. When when did you first notice something might be a little abnormal?
0: Yeah, I was toward the end of my third year of med school and I was on clinical rotations and I felt something strange because, you know, men are pretty familiar with their own testicles, I would say. And, and so, you know, just kind of routine feeling around down there. I was like, oh, that, that's not uh that's not normal. There's there's a little lump there. And I was a pretty astute med student. So I, I knew like my testicle wasn't supposed to grow like another testicle, like mm-hmm. testicles don't divide.
1: That's right. That's so right so
0: I knew, I knew something was was off, but it, it took me like a solid week to convince myself that this was actually a problem. Like, I wanted to explain it away. I was like, oh, that's the, like the epididymis no. Oh, that's, that's this and that, that, that it's okay. Like, that's, I, I don't know, it's going to go away and it did not go away. And it, it maybe even got a little bit bigger. I don't know. Uh, and so eventually in my own head, I convinced myself, okay, this, God, I gotta go. I gotta go see somebody about this. Went into student health. Um, I was at Dartmouth and pretty, it, it was like a whirlwind. It just went so quickly uh, you know, the physician examined me and was like, "Yep, yeah, we got to send you to get an ultrasound. And that day, like two hours later, I got an ultrasound and the radiologist came and was like, yep, yeah, it's cancer. Uh, Let me call the urologist. And like two hours later, I was in the operating room <laughs> getting, getting an orchiectomy. It was amazing how quick it, it went. And I was grateful for that, you know, because I didn't want to, you know, have to, just think about what to do and, you know, too much. And so I was happy it moved along so quickly. And that first diagnosis, I felt okay because, you know, I knew that a lot of times it's, it's, you know, curable. I just, I have the surgery and I don't have to have any other treatment. And that was the case. I didn't have to have any chemo or any other radiation or any, anything else.
1: And, you know, I couldn't, everyone told me I'd be able to live a a normal life. Let me, let me ask you a couple of questions kind of digging into the weeds here. So Mm -hmm. this is many times how it goes, you know, fast moving train. I felt something, ultrasound, tumor markers, urologist, surgery. Mm. And then there's this like weird period of waiting where you're a young person kind of in the prime of your life, you're a third year medical student, riding high, all that. and, And you're just Now you're kind of like maybe by yourself. I don't know if you had any support at that time. If you can reflect back on that time, kind of waiting for the pathology, talk to us a little bit about that. Sure.
0: You know, physically, it was pretty straightforward. Like the surgery, I recovered okay. You know, I couldn't use my ab muscles for a while, so that was a little bit annoying. But emotionally, it was was a big hurdle to get over because, yeah, I was in my mid-20s. And mm-hmm. I, I had been totally healthy, never had any problems whatsoever. I was, th- you know, an athlete and just, and so all of a sudden I had this diagnosis that normally, like I, I associate with people who are in their 60s, 70s. Here I am as like a mid-20s and healthy person and now I have cancer. And so it was, there was a psychological aspect of it that was really hard for me to to deal with. And I did have support. I, I, I was married at the time and we had our our, our first kid had already been born at that point. She was about 12 months old. And so actually what, and the way I had to figure out how to deal with that, right? And I, I'm not the best person at like taking care of myself and that includes my own mental health. And so talking about these things, proved to be really difficult even with my own family and so I started to deal with the kind of the way I'd always dealt with things which is with comedy and through high school and college and into med school I was doing a lot of stand-up comedy but I'd gotten away from it for about a year as a you know life just got more you know busy doing clinical rotations and everything but I had this thing in my life I had to try to deal with and come to terms with and it just, I was like, I started writing jokes. I started like just making fun of this thing and my experience and all the, the weirdness that comes along with a cancer diagnosis. And so it got me back on stage and that's what I i really started to get back into comedy.
1: Okay, I was yeah. gonna ask if you've like kind of always yeah. been funny or when did that happen? Well, yeah, and, um, yeah, I've been doing comedy for a while. And then, and then it kind of kicked into gear when when you were the the butt end of your jokes at, in some form that, or fashion. Exactly.
0: Exactly. It took a lot of ball for me to get up on stage <laughs> and start telling jokes about it. But it's, um, you know, that was really when I started doing medical based comedy, too. Okay. Because up until then, it was, uh, I mean, I wasn't that good at it. You know, no one is really good at stand up comedy when they first get started. I was I was funny, but I, it was a, a learning experience and I was getting better at it by the time I was in med school and I was actually making a tiny bit of money doing it very like 20 bucks. You know, it's like, like not much, <laughs> but and then with the cancer diagnosis, I really started kicking into high gear, the medically themed stuff. Cause I was in med school and I was like, oh, I could, I could make a bunch of there's so much to make fun of in medicine. Yeah. Uh, and yep. so that that was really the start of it, I would say.
1: All right. So so I think you touched upon something that, you know, may or may not be appreciated from kind of the provider end is that, you know, for me as somebody that deals with the cancer all the time, that, you know, this is highly curable and there's no stage four testis cancer, and and I try to be sensitive to my patients when they're going through that world. When, and sometimes even pausing a little bit and, and slowing down a bit. Should we talk about prostheses? Should we talk about sperm banking? You know, do you want to see a fertility, folks? It sounds like those were probably things that that were addressed, and maybe you're like, you know what, I want this thing out like yesterday, and let's like let's make it happen. Can you talk a little bit about that, Will? Yeah, the, the we talked about fertility, and. You know,
0: I, I don't remember, everything was reassuring. It was like, you still have one, you know, good testicle, like you're, we don't need to do sperm banking. So that was, I, I never felt like that was something I needed to do that first time around. Sure. The prosthetic thing uh, I don't actually think that ever really came up. And so, and I never brought it up. I was aware of that as an option, but it, it didn't bother me. I was, you know, totally fine. You know, just going half sack. And so, uh, so yeah, didn't really talk or think about sperm banking that first time. I I remember talking about like the need possibly for chemotherapy. That was one conversation I remember having. And so in waiting for the, the pathology to come back and everyone was pretty confident that this is a seminoma, I I guess maybe because that's just the most common uh, thing that it, it was.
1: Waiting for scans. Do you remember that?
0: Yeah, like all the scans. And also, like, I had this fear of, like, okay, how many years am I going to be doing these scans? Because, like, that's a lot of radiation. I'm, I'm young. And it was that was a concern. And I also felt like I, I didn't get a lot of great answers, like, on, like, what that risk would be or the data behind, like, okay, I've got to do, like, five years of surveillance for this for a thing that's very, very treatable. It was just all, so I didn't question a whole lot of it because I was like, oh, this, uh, you know, these are very accomplished doctors. Like they know what I'm, they know what I need. And so I kind of went with it, but those were the big topics of conversation. I would say like surveillance, the need for that many scans over the course of the next however many years it was and, uh, what, what I need chemotherapy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, obviously you're in medical school, you're kind of well-informed Pretty straightforward stage one seminoma surveillance. And you may, may or may not know this, actually, there's recently this past year, there was a trial at a UK where they looked at three scans versus seven scans and CTs versus MRIs to basically decrease ionizing radiation. And that was a positive trial. So people, I think, are absolutely kind of hearing these concerns of our, of our, oh, of our patients actually doing stuff about it. So, you know, life is going on. You're a medical student. That's typically pretty busy other than your fourth year in my experience. And uh, I, had, I had a great fourth year. It was fantastic. It was a, a f- basically one of my top <laughs> years of my life where I paid $40,000 to be on vacation. Sick uh, move. Right. Don't think about that part. <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of made it through. How did you just navigate? I mean, you got a kid. You can't pick up your kid You're because <laughs> weight restrictions. You've got yeah. school and like shelf exams money i mean, I don't know how you were in medical school i was pretty broke how did, how did all this kind of impact you and come together
0: yeah i mean ironically it kind of cancer happened at a good time uh because i was i was when i had surgery i think it was in fourth year at that point so i i had the flexibility in my schedule to be able to take like a month off to recover from surgery and i also have a an extremely supportive wife who was uh Lady Glockenflecken, shout out to her. She um, has been with me through all the drama of my own medical history. And so I can't say enough about the support she's given me. And so, yeah, I was like, you know, laying in bed. It was kind of like rolling over to try to get up. I I just remember the, the discomfort from how hard it is not to use your abs with that inguinal incision. So the other thing with recovery, I remember the... I think it was that, yeah, it was that first surgery. They came in after the surgery and told me that there was a, a nerve that was, that was cut during the surgery that would cause me to have some numbness, like on my leg. And I was like really nervous about that at first. Uh, it turned out not to be a, a big deal, but it's like a, a moment that stuck in my head like, oh my God, something happened. Well, what? There's just like a sensory nerve. I don't know. I still have some numbness in my yeah, like, leg. a
1: nerve. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> is sure that you're that thinking is? there like, is am I going to was... walk <laughs> again? Like, you know, am I going to make right. it duck? Exactly. You know, kind of in that vein, you're a medical student, third, fourth year, which is conceptually one of the most dangerous times in your life of knowing too much, but actually knowing very little Yeah. in, in my experience. How, how did that kind of impact things? did you drive yourself crazy or did you just kind of say, this is not my wheelhouse? Like, I'm going to trust the people at Dartmouth, obviously kind of a, you know, renowned medical school.
0: Yeah. I, I, I it was mostly the, the trust because, you know, I, <laughs> I knew a lot, but I was, I mean, I didn't know that much. Right. I mean, I didn't know the ins and outs of, of treatment. I knew these stats about testicular cancer and, and I knew it was a really good prognosis, but When you're getting into some of the details about, you know, what are the, what's the infertility chance? What are the, what's the chance of recurrence? What's the surveillance schedule? I I trusted the doctors on that. I you know, I was already in my mind like on my way to ophthalmology. Like let's just, that's the type of balls that I was interested in. And so I was like, uh, you know, I'll let's just uh, let the people do their work and tell me what I need. And if it makes sense, we'll go with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, as like a, as a parent and all of that, when I go into like a pediatrician's office, like I kind of step back and I'm like, I am a parent here. That's I'm right. not a pediatrician. Yeah, when you know like, your limits, right? I mean, yeah, when people call and they're like, important. "Hey, my my aunt got diagnosed with like breast cancer," I'm like, I'll look into this a little bit, and uh, but here's some some broad strokes ideas. I
0: mean, like th- the thing is, like we know going through medical education, like we can read papers, like we understand statistics, so. Yeah, we may not know that type of medicine, but like we can, we understand, we can have a conversation about it, and we can do research that we can trust ourselves. And so that's, I think, that's where kind of the value of going through something like this,
1: but not being in that world, you yeah. know, is still helpful. That's right. It's like when my like advisor tries to sell me crypto. I'm like, I can do a little bit of research here, but oh, um, right. not my forte. All right, so. You know, you were probably told somewhere along the way, hey Will, you know, in addition to your scans and all that, you ought to probably do self exams every month or a couple of months. The yeah. likelihood of developing a second testis cancer is pretty small, you know, two percent or so. Let's talk about round two. Yeah, yeah. No, I was aware of that and um but I just kind
0: of didn't think about it too much, you know. I was doing my my self exams and and then it was four years. After the first orchiectomy, I was a resident at this point entering about to begin my last year of residency. And yeah, one morning I was, I felt my testicle and I was like, oh man, uh, it feels like the same thing that happened last time. I knew pretty quickly what was going on. And so I, you know, went in, I think it was on my lunch break or something. I was like in clinic. And I was like, "Hey, boss, hey, I'm my attending. I just I, got, I just got to run down to radiology to find out if I have cancer, real quick. I'll be right back." <laughs> so that's exactly what I did. I like went down there. I was on call at the time, so I was taking day call. So I had the emergency department pager with me. So just if anything came in, it would come to me. And I was, I, I went down to radiology, had my my ultrasound, and. Just, you know, same thing as last time, pretty much immediately diagnosed with cancer. And then as I was walking out, actually, the I got a page from the emergency department. <laughs> like, I, I had just found out that I had cancer again. And I get this page of like a patient with a horrible trauma to the eye. And I just, I lost it. I was like, I can't do this. I was I started crying. And I, I, fortunately, I had a, a fellow who was a friend of mine with me. And um, took the pager from me. He's like, just go home. Like, I'll take care of this. One of the nicest things anybody's ever done for me was, it was, and that's exactly what I needed. Cause like, you know, medicine teaches us to like work until we're dead and, you know, at all costs, like that's the most important thing. And sometimes you can't do that. You just got to take care of yourself. And that was the, that was the situation for me in that moment. Because it was a, that second diagnosis was a lot harder to deal with. Is uh, now I, I didn't have the other testicle to rely on, right? And mm-hmm. so the things that were kind of brushed aside, all of a sudden now I had to face them. So we had two kids at that point. What do we do now? You know, we're, are we done? Is our family complete? Do I? I was obviously faced with the idea of losing my other testicle. So do we bank sperm? How much is that going to cost? I had a job now as a resident, but you know, it's yeah. residency income. So, and and banking sperm is insanely expensive, and so we had to deal with that and answer that question. What about hormone replacement? And yeah, what what is that like? How much does that cost? <laughs> it's like a big a big part of everything. It was like how much is all this going to cost? Uh, do I need to postpone residency? And so there there were a ton of things we had to try to work through and figure out. Just very stressful. And I was very fortunate to be in a supportive environment in residency. Actually, you know, talking about the needing to get the testicle replaced, that was a question I had, uh, a conversation I had with the urologist was doing a partial orchiectomy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was absolutely going to ask about that if that kind of came up. And I mean, now we're dealing with rarer situations, partial orchiectomy, post-operative radiation, you know, is the remnant testicle actually producing enough testosterone and sperm to make it worthwhile saving? it gets a little bit more nuanced here right it was it was very nuanced and you know i think we also realized
0: because i had my testosterone levels actually checked before i had the orchiectomy the second time and i was low and i'd been low for years and i didn't realize it i thought i was just tired from residency from and life residency. and kids yeah, yeah. And, and my wife was, she was actually kind of pissed about it. She's like, did no one think to check? Cause I had had like three oncologists and like all kinds of doctors, you know, over the course of the previous four years, nobody thought to like, Hey, maybe one testicle is just not enough testosterone. I was told like, I'm going to make plenty of testosterone. Like it's going to be fine. Yeah. No one ever checked my testosterone level after that first orchiectomy. And so I just explained away my like fatigue and that, which was really the, the main problem I had and irritability as well. Like, yeah. it was, and, and Kristen was like, damn it. And no uncertain terms like this, I knew something was off and, and sure enough, she was right. Like I was, I was low and felt so much better once I actually got on the hormone replacement. But the, the decision to have the partial versus the full, they actually gave me, I think I could, have, I could have pushed for the partial. And we were pretty sure our family was complete. We had not like totally made that decision yet. So I did want to bank sperm. So that was a decision we decided to do. But I ended up going ahead and just saying, Let's, I heard about like what it was like to have a partial and there's a chance we'd have to go back and just take the other, you know, the other half of it out depending on what the pathology showed. And so I was like, let's just just get it done. Just get it all out of there. And I'm glad I made that decision because it was a stage one B, I think stage one. So I think there was like some lymphatic involvement or something. So they told me that I would have had to have the other half of it taken out anyway, or at least that would have been the recommendation.
1: Yeah, I'm, I, I mean, don't, we'll, don't tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, I'll just, no, I'll just I, <laughs> I mean, for whatever it's worth, it was me, and I spent a lot of time thinking about this, especially when you have bilateral tumors. A lot of times, the, the idea is there's kind of an underlying testicular dysgenesis syndrome. You probably had some germ cell neoplasia in situ, which nearly yeah. certainly would have turned into another cancer, even if it wasn't a recurrence. So I would have put it to rest. And you, you may also be happy to hear that most kind of contemporary guidelines, NCCN, American Neurology Association... Now is very explicit as a part of the guidelines to monitor for signs and symptoms of hypogonadism, in in mm-hmm. the kind of follow okay. up for patients. You know whether people are kind of doing that uh, religiously. Who knows? But I hope people do. I hope people do because it it really could have helped me a lot. To, <laughs> to, I believe it
0: to have have that replacement. You know, because yeah, I I I needed it. And looking back on it, I I really. I mean, yeah, I was a I was a tired like med student and resident, but like it could have been easier.
1: <laughs> you know, it's, I, I moved to San Diego from Texas a couple of years ago. And like, right before I left, like literally three days, I was like, I'm just gonna get some lab work with my PCP, kind of like yourself. I'm not like seeing my doctor very regularly. Yeah. And my TSH was like through the roof and reflecting. I mean, I, I couldn't even get in a pool in Dallas because I would be freezing cold. Oh, wow. You know, and I, I kind of mentioned this to Everybody in the OR, I was like, it needs to be like seventy-two degrees. And, you know, the post-menopausal <laughs> obese teammates were pretty unhappy with me. And, you know, here I am yeah, now. That's unusual
0: and, for the surgeon. The surgeon always wants it colder. Oh
1: man, I'm like, make <laughs> let's get it hot. <laughs> let's get it hot in here. Um so so round two, did you ever like reach out to any like support groups? You know, in addition it sounds like your family's been incredibly supportive, but um you know, there's some pretty, pretty good foundations out there. Did you ever take advantage of that? I didn't but my wife did for me
0: and that's another part of that support because she knew I wasn't going to try to, I, I am a bit of a bit of a, bit of a loner. I, I don't open up to people very easily. And so my thought process throughout all of this is like, I, I can, I can deal with this on my own. You know, I can, I can handle the the stress, the emotions, the, you know, the not trusting my own body, all the things that come with disease, like a disease like cancer. And, and my wife recognized that she's like, hell no, no, you're not. You can't do that. Like, that's not the way this works. And she actually, you know, got on the internet and was trying to find something for me that she thought would be helpful. And she found First Descents, which is an organization for young adults impacted by all kinds of cancer. So basically like 18 to 40 year old, you know, people, who have had you know every kind of cancer under the sun, and basically it's a it's an active organization. They do a lot of fantastic work, but they bring together groups of these young adults with cancer to go on these outdoor adventure programs for like a week. The idea is like it gets you like trusting yourself again, trusting your body, and and realizing that you still have a lot to live for, and and you can still do a lot even though you have this disease. You're still capable of amazing things and and it's just this w- wonderful support network because that's a group of people that really need it and don't have it because a lot of nonprofits a lot of the the focus is on kids and older adults you know and, and I, f- I really feel like a lot is left on the table in terms of support especially for like the 20 year olds the 30 year olds you know they're they're often overlooked in cancer support and so, First Dissent is, is just a great organization that focuses on that group.
1: Yeah, I'd I'll, I'll love to hear that. And just a couple of thoughts and comments. You know, I've been pretty fortunate to be involved with some of the Testis Cancer Support Groups, the Testis Cancer Society, the Testis Cancer Awareness Foundation. And we do, you know, events where we have patients and caregivers importantly join. And, you know, I can't imagine what it's like to have gone through that experience, not just once, but twice. How did your wife do with all of this? I mean, did she, was she just like rocking and rolling? I have to imagine it was pretty rough on her as well.
0: Oh yeah. You know, it's, I mean, she's, she's a co-survivor of all these medical traumas. Like she's, you know, it happened to me physically, but it just as much happened to her because she's going through all of this with me, the recoveries from surgeries, the, the mental stress, you know, the, the financial stress, like she, she's a part of it every step of the way. And so she needs support as well. And she, and I tried to give that to her the best I could, and family did as well. But that's another area that I think medicine can do a lot better is giving support for the co survivors, the family members, the partners who go along this, this medical journey with the patient who are just as affected, if not more, by everything they have to go through. Yeah. And so it's been, it's been tough, but, you know, she's, Incredibly strong, and
1: and we've gone through it together. So, so now you're you're done two testis cancers. Two. At least you're gone. You're not at risk of developing testis cancer again. Yeah, I can't. I mean, no, that's, uh, that's that's off the table. And uh, <laughs> you know, I, I listened to a podcast that you did. You know, Will's got a podcast called Knock Knock High. It's it's really funny. Wide variety of topics. And um, there was, I think it was Doctor. O'Riordan, a breast cancer survivor, mm-hmm. and you were talking about it and you know, I was pretty amazed. A couple of things that kind of jumped out. You're like, well, you know, riding a bike, it's like super comfortable now. Oh yeah. And you know, I play soccer with kids and you know, no concern (laughs) about getting nailed in the the sack. And I was like, good for you, man, that you can really just kind of put that aside and think about it through a different lens.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, it's, you know, testicles, you know, you, you can, you can survive without them. I mean, they're important, you know, but, but it's, uh, uh, my joke is that they're a little overrated.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, you know, they make sperm and they make testosterone. You can bank sperm and you can get testosterone. So, um, you know, oh, the sperm and-
0: banking thing, like that—that that was a whole new like area of learning for me. <laughs> Not just like the the process of making sperm, which is a very strange experience, especially when you're having to do it at your like place of work. <laughs> but <laughs> what's interesting, what I didn't realize is like you have the cost of the the refrigeration or whatever. But whenever you like hand your little cup of your specimen to the person, surreal experience. But then you, then you, they ask you all these questions like, do you want your sperm to be transported to the storage facility on two separate trucks? Like in case there's some horrific accident or there's a (laughs) a sperm heist (laughs) and like you lose one of the trucks, like you still have, and that's like an additional five hundred bucks or something. It's like, like all these. I never even thought about that. Like, what happens to the truck? And what happens to your sperm? That's like the only genetic material that I, I have left. And so I had to like make these decisions. Sure. And before long, it's like you know a couple thousand bucks. You're, you know, you're shelling out. And and we, I did. I bank sperm probably for about about a year. And then eventually we just realized that we were, our family was complete. And so then I had to get the specimen destroyed, which involves like going to FedEx and having a, one of the FedEx employees, who's a, um, a notary yeah, like sign yeah. off on my sperm destruction. Yeah. Like, can you, excuse me, uh, you don't know me, but can you help me destroy my sperm please? So that was a fun, that was an interesting experience as well.
1: You know, funny enough, we, we had some kind of fertility stuff and bank sperm and all this kind of stuff. And you got to send in a notarized letter and yeah. that whole experience ultimately ended up being quite traumatic and not good. And I guess they never logged that we'd signed it, get rid of it. We're done. And I kept on getting these like bills and reminder letters and it was, you know, oh just God. like kind of, kind of crappy. And you know, sperm making is one of those things that kind of gets my goat. The two places that I've practiced as an attending are Dallas, Texas, and San Diego. And they have high rates of uninsured and underinsured populations. And it's just, it drives me bonkers when you have these young men, you're, you're trying to get them through it. And many of them have advanced agencies needing chemo and so on. And and they can't afford it. You know, that $350 consultation, the $800 kind of lot. cryopreservation fee, and then that's an annual expense. And I mean, it's actually something that people at like the California advocacy level are, are kind of looking into because it's just a lot, you know, I think that, that kind of aspect of, of cancer care. I was, I was surprised with how expensive it was.
0: I didn't expect that. And I was fortunate to be able to afford it, but you know, it was expensive enough to make us think, okay, maybe we should just not do this because like, we could use that money uh, for other things.
1: Totally. It's not trivial. So cancer one, cancer two. And so how long has it been since your last cancer diagnosis?
0: That was in 2016, so So yeah. all,
1: for all practical purposes, you're home free and that's of historical interest only, fantastic.
0: I'm home free, yeah. Just, I, I mean, the only, you know, I still see a urologist because of the testosterone mainly. And so that's been the other um, point of kind of stress at times is figuring out what to do, man. There's, it's not straightforward. There's a lot of options. And that was another thing. Like I, I didn't, I don't, I don't feel like I was very well informed about what I could do with testosterone. And at first I was on the gel. I hate the gel. The gel's terrible. It's, it's, I, the daily, you know, you have to worry about, you know, I had small kids. I was like, I can't touch you for a while. I'm sorry. So the gel was, was just, some people might like it. I, that was my least Not favorite. for you. No. And then um, I did the injection, like the, the sapionate like, you know, weekly injections, you know, in the ass. And um, that was okay, but wild swings. But I, I did it for like several years because I thought, oh, this is probably the best option. Like there's yeah. nothing else. Yeah, this is, I'll just do this. It's only once a week. Yeah, I'll manage it. And it wasn't until I, w- I went to speak at a uh, urology conference like a couple, like okay. last year. Yeah. I spoke at the uh, Mayo Clinic. They have like a urology conference that they put on. In Hawaii. And so, in Hawaii. Uh, yeah. We'll have to say it is in Hawaii. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a great, great conference. <laughs> <laughs> so I was out there speaking and talking with a bunch of urologists and I, I it came up and I was like, oh, I'm doing the injections much better than the jails. Like, why are you still doing the injections? Like there's better options out there. And, and I had no idea, like they get the testapel and you got the, like the, and I don't have any financial, you know, you know, interest in any of this stuff, just that I want like good testosterone. And so there's all kinds of stuff and, and I didn't realize it and no one had told me. And I had, I had not had a urologist either. Like I, I was like, okay, I don't have any testicles. Why would a urologist need to see me? Yeah, You know, but that's not the case. And so I got a recommendation for a urologist and Man, the information, like I got that first consultation, just about the different options, it was like, oh man, I could have used this like four years ago. So uh, there's a lot of options out there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a theme, particularly for testis cancer, which is generally so curable, is that good is the enemy of perfect. Could you have lived the rest of your life getting cypionate? Probably. If it had never been discussed to do a partial orchiectomy, but it's all these little things, you know, we're going to cure you, but there's also ramifications for the rest of your life and certainly for advanced stage disease. We're talking about chemotherapy and radiation. There's good data we've published that the actual volume of testis cancer that any given institution sees is directly related to outcomes, kind of stage for stage. So I'm glad it's, you know, you're not uh, kind of an andropause level where you finally learned about the different options and, and that you're on something that kind of works for you. So you're cruising through, you made it through cancer twice, and then you had like another, just sounds like a completely wild, catastrophic event.
0: Yeah, a cardiac arrest. That was crazy. That one came out of nowhere. <laughs> so literally, yeah, it was uh, 4 a.m. on um, in May of 2020, and uh, my wife, woke up to hear me having agonal breaths. So I was kind of gasping for air. She thought I had um, some kind of respiratory thing. That's what she thought it was, but knew something was off because she wasn't able to wake me up. And so she called 911. And she's not in medicine, by the way. And so the dispatcher recognized that this is probably a, a cardiac arrest. And so instructed Kristen to start doing chest compressions. And she did 10 minutes of chest compressions until the first responders arrived, kicked down our back door, which was fantastic. And I, I I joke, I've never been so happy to have structural damage to my house before. And they, they resuscitated me. This is at height of COVID too. So they were wearing all their gear and, you know, my God. I don't know how they did it. It was dark. Somehow they intubated me and got an IV in, even though I'd been down for 10 minutes and took me to the hospital. Yeah. And like I was home you know, two and a half days later. It's crazy. She's so yeah, my wife saved my life.
1: That's amazing. I mean we don't know why either.
0: I mean it has nothing to do with cancer. You know, it's just like another thing. And so uh we I've had every every test available pretty much and including genetic testing and I'm fine. I so you're know.
1: intubated ICU hyper hyperthermia. Hypothermia, they, is that they, right? They
0: did, they did hypothermia like twenty four hours. Yeah. Yeah, it cooled me down right away and then and then that 24 hours, you know, nobody knew anything, what would happen. Uh, and then they, they brought me out of cryogenesis
1: and, yeah, uh, like a medically induced coma basically. Yeah. I don't okay. know the
0: details. I'm an ophthalmologist, but you know, I'll, I'll I'm a, your, I, you I certainly probably, don't either. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of guys have no idea what we're talking about here. And so, and, and then, yeah, they woke me up and I was neurologically intact. Pretty, That's, so pretty w- when you
1: woke up, when you first kind of started, came to, you still had a a breathing tube in? You are still intubated?
0: No, the first, I mean, I, I was extubated by the time. The first thing I remember, my, my memory is super hazy around like this whole thing. But the first thing I remember was my nurse, Roger, talking to me and asking me questions. And uh, I remember my first FaceTime call because this is COVID. So none of my family could be in the hospital with me. Oh my God. Um. Yeah. That, that made it uh, slightly more challenging <laughs> for everyone. And So they, yeah, I remember the FaceTime call with my wife. I I wasn't talking to the kids at that point because we didn't, you know, we had to be careful with what we, we had to figure out how to slowly
1: break all this news to them. And, and we were- How old were they at this time, Will? They were five and eight. Okay. I've got a six and a nine year old. I can't really imagine having that type of conversation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of a wait and see. Let's see what- the long-term repercussions physically would it be like for me? And then we can kind of let them in on everything that happened. And now they know a lot about it and they're very familiar with it. They know we talk about it a lot. There's certain things we still have not shown them. Like when we when we give keynotes, we play the 911 call, which is very powerful and harrowing and scary and all the emotions. So we, we haven't let them listen to that yet. We probably won't for quite a while unless they want to and they're older, but other than that, we've been pretty open with them about what happened. And I think that's good because we don't give kids credit for, for their ability to understand and process and recognize things.
1: Yeah. You know, we, um, we had a tough go at about five years ago, five years now. My wife was 32 weeks pregnant, lost a baby during the induction. Her uterus ruptured. It was like a scene out of ER, you know, stat, take back pressure bags of blood and all that. And it was kind of a a major life recalibration for all of us. I mean, we lost the, lost the baby and, you know, I thought it was quite possible that my wife was going to die also. And there were things that, that stood out, you know, being on the other side of things, being a patient that I'll never forget. I mean, one of my like pet peeves for like any post-op patient is, are they getting like Tylenol and Tordol, for instance, like she had DIC and couldn't get Tordol when you've got multiple teams and you're waiting for person A to say, get the breathing tube out and you can have sips of clears or your diet can be advanced. What are some of the things that you really kind of remember and maybe some of the things that were amazing and maybe some of the things that were particularly offensive being on the other end, anywhere across your kind of fairly extensive medical journey?
0: Thinking a little bit more long-term and talking about those things. You know, I, f- I feel like Doctors can be very much just in the moment and this is what the patient needs right now to get better and then you're better, like you can go home and then that's it. But there's so much more to recovery, especially from major diagnoses or medical events. There's the emotional aspect of things, that mental stress and uh, medical bills. And and, and there's, there's so much more than just the immediate recovery and I feel like we are that's what we're primarily trained to focus on, right? Is get get the patient better. And if you're in a field where you are, where you have patients that have these serious, serious illnesses, like bringing up like the idea that, you know, this is going to be, you know, six months, 12 months, maybe if several years down the road, you're are going to have these difficulties, this this is what could happen down the road. This is the, I I recognize the emotional toll this is taking. How's your wife doing? We're talking to my, if my wife, if the family members there in the room, how are you doing? You know, because it's, it's not just the patient. And so just being cognizant of, of some of the, the long-term challenges that if the patient and the family might face, I think is something we could do a lot better
1: it just occurred to me. What about like going to sleep? Did you have anxiety about going to sleep? At first I did. Yeah. yeah I would imagine. I mean, my- I'm still
0: like, cause I do a lot of traveling for speaking and I, I still get a little bit nervous whenever I'm going without my wife, you know, yeah. whenever I have to sleep in a room by myself, that's gotten better over
1: time. Any, any things that were done that you were just like, man, I can't believe that that happened to me, you know, whether that's. I don't know, yeah. little things. Maybe it's a little thing. Maybe it's a big thing that you're like, I would, I would never do that to a patient. Oh, I, I think
0: it really looking back, it was pretty horrific that we were limiting family from being there with patients in the hospitals. Uh, I understand it. There's a lot we didn't know about COVID. Yeah. But that, that was like legitimately traumatizing, I think to a lot of people and and so one thing that I, well, really two things that, that I took away from this cardiac arrest was making sure I involve family any chance I get, you know, if a patient is in my exam room, you know, by themselves, clearly they didn't come alone. I'd be like, do you want to bring so-and-so into the room with you? Like just being, being more inclusive of family members. Is a big, big thing that I focus on now, and the other thing is talking about health insurance. That's that's really important to you know be educated on the physician side of things and not being afraid to discuss cost of of things and and whether or not the patient's struggling or 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 if a copay is going to be too much to deal with or you know all all just just finances surrounding health insurance. I think is something we could you know that I do a little bit more of.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I I definitely want to touch base a little bit on how you've been able to use your, your kind of influence um, on areas that you're passionate about. I mean, insurance seems like one of those before we do that quick question. So you kind of mentioned talking to kids part. I mean, this, at this point you're in attending and it's just like, I'm out. I've got to take care of myself and my family. I'll see you when I see you and everybody's supportive. Is that the experience that you had or was it something different? I have very supportive, uh, partners,
0: you know, so I, I've been private practice out here in Portland and, uh, whenever the cardiac arrest happened, Kristen got on the phone with one of my partners and be like, Hey, Will's not coming in today. <laughs> and they, they were unbelievable. They, they said, take as much time as you need. And I ended up taking a month off, which is in retrospect was not a very much time for given what happened, but they could have, I could have taken two or three months off. I think if I wanted to, uh, they would have supported me in that. And so they, you know, everything got put on hold. They saw my patients for me. Obviously surgeries were rescheduled. And when I came back, I felt hundred percent, I felt ready to, you know, see patients again. And, and so it was, it was very smooth. It was, and that was, it was important. I didn't want it's important, I think, that I didn't have to deal with stress of like, what is work going to, how are they going to deal with this? The reassurance I got from them that everything's going to be fine, we'll take, we'll handle things. That just took a little bit more stress away from me so I could focus on the things I needed to focus on in recovery.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, when my whole situation happened with my wife, I called my chairman. I've been in academics. I was like, hey, Klaus, I'm going to be gone. I'm not sure when I'm coming back here's yeah. you know some detail and it was all handled you know patients were contacted i didn't have to do anything and i think you know these are those types of culture things that it, it may be hard to recognize kind of going into it but it sure is nice when it goes well yeah for sure and actually that experience sometimes just walking away cold was a nice reminder that sometimes i think we're so embedded and kind of egocentric with our patients and our practice that hey listen the world's going to turn there's people that can do what I do, you're gonna get great mm-hmm. care and um, it was a kind of a humbling and a positive way experience for me. yeah, does any of that resonate? Yeah, I think I've learned a lot,
0: and I think just having that perspective as a patient, I think is really important uh, you know not everybody's going to have that, but I think I you know using that experience to make medicine better for my patients and just, you know, helping them navigate the healthcare system, all that stuff is just, and so I, I try to find the net positive in this horrible situation. And I talk about that a lot, you know, when I speak to groups and stuff. And, and I think that's, you know, just trying to find some kind of turn this into, you know, something positive, I think has is, is been really helpful for me, you know, psychologically to deal with this.
1: Yeah, I mean, do you bring it up with patients? Like, hey, do some of them know, or or how does that kind of work? Some of them know, you know, because they've seen me on social
0: media. They know my. They ask me how I'm doing, and I always feel a little uncomfortable when they do. That. But but it's very nice, you know, because they're you know they 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 clearly care and and but I don't I don't bring it up. On rare occasions, I will bring up the, my cancer history. You know, just. Because obviously I've lots of patients in my in their seventies, eighties, nineties. There's a lot of cancer that people yeah, I see patients for routine eye exams, but they we end up talking for most of the time about their new lung cancer diagnosis. That has nothing to do with eyeballs. Yeah. And that's just the nature of the demographic that I'm I'm treating. And and so sometimes I'll bring up my own cancer experience if I think it's relevant. And I think it would help, you know, the dynamic.
1: Yeah. I mean, it sounds like nearly certainly this experience, I guess, if there's a silver lining, not that you needed all that to maybe prompt you towards being a better doctor where you're dialed in on to some of these yeah. things. And now we've got, you know, we've, we've, we've only talked about your medical history and not even kind of touched on how you've been able to bring humor into this and how it's resonated with so many people. And maybe just a bit about how you currently use that platform To advocate for issues that you're passionate about.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, for a long time, it was just jokes. And I was just like, you know, this is funny. Let's just do this and making fun of different specialties. And I still love doing that. (laughs) There's a lot of easy targets uh, in medicine, especially surgeons. You know, that is the low hanging fruit of medical comedy is making fun of surgeons. It's great. But after going through these health issues, you know, I, I pivoted a little bit more toward using humor for advocacy and in particular, like health insurance, probably just like healthcare system issues that we have. And I think it's helpful. It's a form of advocacy. I I I do consider it advocacy because, you know, I do have a platform, obviously, a lot of people follow me. And so by addressing this really serious topic, whether it's like prior authorizations or in network, out of network, whatever, any kind of health insurance shenanigans by addressing those issues in a, you know, basically like disguising it as comedy, it gets people listening. It gets people watching. And it's gonna that message is gonna reach more people versus if I just like was standing sitting in front of this microphone just talking about what a prior authorization is and why it's bad. You know, so I think comedy is an underused method of doing advocacy work, especially in the social media era, because you can reach so many people through humor. And then you just put a little truth in there uh, about something that's not so good that needs to change and your ideas can spread.
1: Yeah, I love that. And I'm I'm sure, you know, as a comedian, some part of this is being vulnerable. You know, the first time you get out there, it's like, oh my God, if if this tanks, that's not going to be fun. And I mean, one thing I've actually, I think, improved upon just having a podcast is like, I think people want honesty, authenticity, vulnerability, and that resonates more. And, you know, maybe I'm I'm kind of reading into this, but creating jokes, trying to be being funny and then actually addressing issues. You know, there's some vulnerability that's associated with that.
0: Yeah, I I, I agree, you know, and. Those are my favorite types of videos to produce though, is, is the ones that have a little truth that hurts a little bit, you know, because it's so relatable, but also makes you laugh. That's, that's the sweet spot I think for, for what I'm doing right now.
1: So as, as a kind of habitual line dancer, crosser, have any of them kind of blown back in any type of meaningful way?
0: <laughs> uh, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've on every platform I've deleted something, one thing or the other, <laughs> cause it just doesn't land the way I want it to land, or it's causing more causing some confusion or or like too many people are just fighting about something that i I don't think is important or it's not the the point of the of the of the uh video, but I've gotten to the point now where i I kinda know what the reaction's gonna be like I know when I'm riling people up I know when and sometimes I do that purposefully like i want I want a little bit of debate I want people to talk about some of these health insurance things and the challenges we have at the U in US healthcare. And so I know what I'm doing. <laughs> it's very it's not very frequently now that I like am going to put a piece of content on social media and have no idea how it's going to go. Yeah. And that's I think that's important because you don't want to be surprised by a a backlash.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, as as we're kind of winding down here, I've got three final questions for you. So we'll start out with the kind of chip shots here. Advice for patients. Advice for patients,
0: uh, don't sleep in your contacts, stay away from Visine, and uh, just understand that ophthalmologists are the best, most accomplished, most handsome doctors out there.
1: All right, you you actually might have answered number three inadvertently, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) advice for MDs. (laughs) Um, Advice for
0: MDs. I would say have a social media presence. You know, there's lots of different things you can do with social media. Some of them are less productive, some are more productive, but we, I think we need to be on social media because that's where people are. That's where patients are. That's where people get their information. And so we need as many trusted, educated voices as possible on social media. So, uh, you know, it's easy to say, I don't want to mess with all that. Like it's, it's, it's terrible. It's bad. And yeah, there are awful aspects to social media. There are bad things about it, but It doesn't change the fact that like for advocacy work, for education, it's really important that we're out there.
1: I love it. And then lastly, I mean, you've taken a deep dive into essentially all medical specialties. What's the best one?
0: (laughs) I mean, come on, man. (laughs) (laughs) Ophthalmology, clearly. The ones that I I like, I like uh, making fun of the most. I mean, I I love doing the therapy videos. Those are fun. That's my probably my favorite character to play <laughs> is the is the psychiatrist slash therapist. The operating room videos are all always very popular. People just love making fun of surgeons. I don't know what it is. It's just it's great. I think that that some of the egos in surgery, like they're they're so big that uh, you can't knock them off the pedestal very easily. And so surgeons can take a joke. They lo- They don't. They, you know. Whatever. Yeah. I can make fun of orthopedic surgeons all day and they're not going to get mad at me. You know, same thing with like neurosurgeons, general surgeons. Uh, so so I, to all the, the surgeons listening, like I appreciate you because uh, I know I can make fun of you all day and I'm not going to get in trouble. So thank you for accepting my ridicule.
1: <laughs> well, Will, hey, thanks for, you know, kind of getting the word out there for testis Cancer Awareness Month, for for physicians and how we can really be the best versions of ourselves and and i think as a on behalf of the medical community you know the the humor that you bring and allow us to take ourselves a little less seriously is is massively massively helpful so thank you for your time thanks for sharing your story it's been an absolute pleasure
0: thank you good to be here
2: thank you so much for listening if you haven't already make sure to subscribe rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff.
1: Design and Digital Marketing, led by Brian Schmitz. Article and Transcript, support by Taylor Robinson.
2: And Delaney Aguilar. Social Media and PR by Anne Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim uri Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening.